Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Friday, May 19th, and welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander with me, and I think we're going to touch on some Missouri recruiting. Conzo Martin hired just uh, two months ago, already has a top 10 recruiting class for the class of 2017. We'll get into that a little later on, and uh, might even talk some NBA draft stuff as well. But uh, I want to start with the, the big news of the week, I think, and, and that's Muhammad Bamba uh, committing to the University of Texas. For those unfamiliar, he is... Uh, the number two overall prospect in the class of 2017 uh, had offers from basically everybody, including Duke and Kentucky. He picked Texas. Norlander, um, how big is that for Shaka Smart's program? A program that obviously is coming off a rough season. They finished dead last in the Big 12 last season. They did. It was the worst season of Shaka Smart's eight-year career. It was the first time that he did not win 20 games in a season. Getting Bamba should, in theory, uh, bring him back to the norm, and that means win, winning 20 or more games in a season. And in fact, I think if Andrew Jones opts to return, which is the expectation, uh, if he comes back, I think Texas will be a top five team in the Big 12, potentially a top four team, might even flirt with some national ranking in the AP poll as we get into next season. The Bomba commitment is big because when combined with the rest of the recruiting class, we mentioned Missouri, Texas now has the fourth ranked class in the country and will probably solidify in that spot by the time we get all four stars and five stars committed over the next few weeks. Um, when you're able to get four stars that, that hover in that 45 to 75 range, and Texas has a couple of those, you're basically ensuring yourself, barring injury or barring major fallouts with the coaching staff and a player, and obviously we know how many players tend to transfer these days. But really, I think Shock has done the best of both worlds here. He's got enough long-term viability with these four stars, and then he's got immediate big-time impact success with getting Bamba, who's obviously a one-and-done player. I think he is a lock, barring injury, okay, to go top five because he's seven foot tall, has a seven foot nine wingspan. I've heard this stat, fact, nugget repeated many times over the past 24 hours, so I'm going to take it as reality. Apparently, there is no one right now in the NBA with a longer wingspan than Mohamed Bamba. So based on his overall physical attributes and he's a fantastic defender i think that there's nothing that he could do performance wise that would not warrant him going in the top five next year because it's not like a scal situation like muhammad bamba will not suddenly suck at defense when you're good at defense you're good at it and he's an excellent defender particularly on the perimeter so that's great for immediate success for texas i also think it's good for long term with the class overall and i'll tag it with this gp there was a there was some surprise with this one because the announcement kind of came out of nowhere um, there was no, hey, Mohamed Bamba is going to announce on Thursday where he's going. He just kind of dropped on the Players' Tribune. He faxed in a letter of intent. This got done in a real hurry. Um, and there was some surprise with this because Bamba was so heavily recruited by Duke and Kentucky. And Kentucky was the most likely outcome, uh, according to prognosticators and you know, basically two dozen uh, recruiting analysts that were compiled and tracked at 247 Sports. So... I understand why there is that element of surprise there, and I think it's more because Krzyzewski and Calipari have been so successful over the past half decade. But I want to remind listeners that Texas is an elite program. It was voted as a top five most desirable job in all of college basketball when we pulled more than 100 coaches two years ago, GP, and that beat out the likes of UCLA, Indiana, and Louisville. Texas has gotten regularly top 10 prospects. So I just want to put this in context. Like Bamba is definitely a surprise. It's a huge boon. It's, it's very, very big. 
But it's not like, you know, Shaka just got Jared Allen last year. He was a one-and-done player. And, in fact, Allen leaving was probably the clinching factor to Bamba going. Because I'm not convinced that if he had not left, if Bamba might not be headed to Lexington instead. Oh, well, you could play those guys together, couldn't you have? You could have, but I just wonder if if Bamba perhaps, you know, knowing that he would be the true centerpiece in that front court sure. was the ultimate thing. Because, for instance... You know, you could have played Bamba with Nick Richards at Kentucky, but maybe he just sees a, a complete opening in Austin, and that was, you know, one of the major factors. I know having he was coached by Shaka Smart with USA Basketball as well, and he actually directly attributed that as a major factor in his letter at the Players Review. Yeah, and that's you know, if you ever wonder why these college basketball coaches essentially volunteer their time to USA Basketball, um, that this is the reason why because it can pay off, and uh, clearly, as as Muhammad Bamba stated in that story he wrote for the Players' Tribune, uh, the relationship he was able to develop uh, with Shaka Smart through USA Basketball by being coached with, with USA Basketball is a huge factor in, in getting this done. You mentioned the recruiting class in general. Uh, just to uh, uh, put a period uh, on, on Texas and how this – they got a chance to be good next year. I mean, you enroll Matt Coleman, who's a, you know, a top 50 point guard. You bring back Kerwin Roach. Uh, you presumably bring back – Andrew Jones, add Muhammad Bamba. I don't know that that's a preseason top 25 team, but if you look up in uh, you know January and, and Texas looks like maybe they're headed to the NCAA tournament, that wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world. What's interesting to me about this recruiting class that's now ranked fourth in the country is that it's, it's five top 90 players, but four of them ranked outside of the top 45. And I bring that up because I don't think we've spoken since – I mean, I know we've spoken, but I don't think we've podcasted since uh, I wrote a column last week about North Carolina. And when Kevin Knox, the five-star forward who committed to Kentucky um, over North Carolina and and Duke and uh, a number of other schools, uh, picked Kentucky, uh, as Andrew Carter uh, pointed out in a story he wrote that really was sort of the root of of me deciding to write this column, Kevin Knox was the 49th top 25 national recruit that North Carolina had offered in the past five recruiting cycles. And he was the 46 to say no to them. I mean, that's an amazing statistic. They've offered in the past five recruiting cycles, 49 top 25 players, and they've missed on 46, only gotten three of them. And yet, as you know, uh, they've won back to back uh, ACC regular season championships. They've uh, been to back-to-back national championship games. They've won a national championship. They're going to be preseason top five, I think, uh, next year. And so what I found interesting is that though Duke has out-recruited North Carolina and Kentucky has out-recruited North Carolina, Duke and Kentucky have not outperformed North Carolina in recent years. And I think it's directly attributable to those misses. My point being this, and I'll tie this back to Texas in a second. You'll see where I'm going. Um, every time Roy misses on a top 25 guy, it means he's missing on a possible, if not probable, one and done. But it's not like they're then having to go out and sign junior college guys and sub 100 prospects. They're still getting guys ranked between 25 and 75. And those guys are immensely talented, obviously, but they're also going to be sophomores and they're going to be juniors and they're going to be seniors. And so if you look at North Carolina over the past three years, their leading scores have always been juniors and sophomores, seniors and juniors, juniors and juniors. It's all never in the past, I think what I looked up, past three years, has North Carolina 
had a freshman in its top three scores. And that means that their freshmen have been role players who become sophomores as opposed to stars who then become NBA draft prospects. So what happens? Uh, North Carolina has gotten old and they've been able to stay old. And it looks exactly like what Villanova did. You know, Villanova won a national championship two years ago, had seven top 80 prospects on the roster. Only one of them, Jalen Brunson, was a top 25 recruit. So what happened? They enrolled talented guys, somewhere ranked between 25 and 75, got them to be sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and then was able to go win a national championship. Carolina, the exact same formula. And to be clear, it's not by design. Roy Williams wants those those top 25 players. He just, for a variety of reasons, A, nobody's recruiting well against uh, Mike Krzyzewski and John Calipari these days, uh, Shaka Smart this week being a, a rare exception, and B, the NCAA scandal sort of hovering above North Carolina has, at the very least, cost them one, and I think it's reasonable to uh, presume many, but at least one top 25 prospect, that being Brandon Ingram. How do we know that? Because Brandon Ingram said, if not for the NCAA investigation, I would have probably gone to North Carolina. And so it looks like what Roy's done is stumble into um, a formula that actually works perhaps better. And that's just get guys ranked 25 to 75 and maybe sprinkle in a top 25 guy here or there. But if you get the guys 25 to 75, those are the guys that are talented enough to win championships uh, because they're going to be sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And at the top of the sport, Sunday Carolina doesn't have raw talent like Duke and Kentucky, but they have really talented 21 and 22-year-olds as opposed to super, super incredibly talented 18 and 19-year-olds. And my point being with Texas is that this is the type of class that becomes that. You know, Muhammad Bamba is going to be a one-and-done guy, but Matt Coleman ain't, Jericho Sims ain't, Royce Ham isn't. And so you, you look at this is the type of class that when these guys are sophomores and juniors or juniors and seniors, now you got something that might be special. This, yes, I completely agree. Because um, Bomba is going to be a lot of fun to watch. I think Coleman will develop into a really nice, like, three year uh, lead guard to run Shaka's offense. And perhaps this, you know, listen, I know that on, what is it, May 19th, 2017, it sounds ridiculous to kind of say this kind of thing, but I do think it's possible. Like, perhaps this is the recruiting class. Maybe we look two years from now. You know, maybe Shaka gets another really elite recruit next year, right? Or two years from now. And maybe when these guys are going to be juniors, this is the class. This is the team that knocks Kansas from the top of the damn Big 12. Again, we'll believe it when I actually see it. But you need these kind of recruiting classes to make that a reality. Um, this is, uh, I mean, listen, it's it's good for college basketball, in my opinion, that Bamba went to Texas over Duke and Kentucky because those programs they already have plenty. I mean, either, you know, Bamba going to either one of those programs would have really, in my opinion, it would have really amped up the national title conversation for either school. Uh, but those programs already have plenty of talent as is. Now you get Texas, which is obviously an extremely important program and school in that league. Arguably, uh, from a basketball standpoint, the second most important one. Uh, and from a football standpoint, obviously the most important one. But uh, to have a viable one-and-done player um, to kind of just reboot Shaka's operation there, hopefully get some momentum going there. Uh, big news for the Big 12. Uh, to be clear, it's hard to question uh, the recruiting approach of Mike Krzyzewski or John Calipari. Uh, Duke and Kentucky have the number one and number two ranked recruiting classes in the country for the fourth consecutive year in some order. This year, Kentucky's number one. Um, 
I think year before it was Duke that was number one, but whatever. For the fourth consecutive year, those two have ranked first and second. And it runs counter to all of your instincts to to take an inferior prospect over a, a, a you know a top ten recruit. But I wonder if if you were a college basketball coach right now, and you looked at the makeup of the roster of the last two national champions, Villanova and North Carolina, and 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 the rosters are essentially the same in this way. They lack one and done guys, but they are filled with top seventy five prospects, guys who are. Uh, ranked somewhere between 25 and 75, who became juniors and seniors. That's what that's what Villanova won with. That's what Carolina won with. If you were John Calipari and Mike Krzyzewski, would you slightly alter your approach? In other words, would you do this? Would you instruct your staff, we're going to go out and try to get that transcendent star, one of them or two of them? Like, we, let's, let, yeah, let's go. If, if John Wall's out there, let's go get John Wall. If Justice Winslow's out there, let's go get Justice Winslow. If, but... If we're going to sign five players in a class, let's go two probable one-and-dones and and three guys that we know have no chance at being one-and-dones. Three guys who are ranked 25th and up. That way we're going to have sophomores, we're going to have juniors, because one of the things we have learned from college basketball, and we talked about this in the last podcast, is that you can be very good with all first-year players. Kentucky's done it. Uh, But the best teams... And, and, and Duke's best teams in the one-and-done era and Kentucky's best teams in the one-and-done era tend to have a little bit more roster balance than what Kentucky's roster is going to have next year. I wonder if you would actually say, we're not going out and getting the five best prospects we can get. We're going to get the two best prospects we can get, and then we are going to say no to other probable one-and-dones in favor of guys who are not as talented but that are going to be sophomores and juniors. Would you do that? Uh, well, two things. One, Duke has kind of done this uh, weirdly. Like two weeks ago, they signed that kid. Uh, yeah, but I don't think that's what that's about. I know, I know. Well, this kid Jordan Goldwire was like thinking he was going to go to Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, no, that no. I am not saying go go take one and dones and then mix in a guy who was going to Eastern Kentucky. That's not my approach at all. But but yeah. but maybe it is take some one and dones and then go get Jordan Tucker. You know, who's a top top eighty five right. player. Maybe it is yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think there is definite value. So there's the the actual challenge of resisting that if you think you have the opportunity to grab basically as many top. 20 players as possible right like like if the scenario is you can go get the uh, one and done player who's ranked fourth in the country a one and done player who's ranked seventh in the country a one and done player who's ranked 12th in the country a one and done player who's ranked 15th in the country and you say okay we're going to take the one that's ranked fourth we're going to take the one that's ranked seventh we're turning down those other two in in favor of taking a kid ranked 28th and 35th because those kids are going to be sophomores and juniors listen it it is definitely Something that coaching staffs, you know, the three or four that are really applied to this, should probably consider because, like, schools like Villanova, you almost fall into it. Like, you're going to try and get the best you can, and then who you're going to get is who you're going to get. And then, if you've got a really good culture and a really good program, which Jay Wright does, um, it, it, things, you know, could work itself out. Although, I will say that Jay Wright said this multiple times on record in that, like, he used to chase basically the best possible talents for a, for a, you know a three four year period um he was going after guys that were five stars and in, in those top 20 rankings that kind of blew up on him um he didn't have a lot of consistency year to year he had chemistry problems 
he bailed on all of that um, and kind of just started his recruiting philosophy over. That eventually led to the the roster building that you saw that with the with the team that won the title. So yeah, I mean, if you want to say that there's a magic formula, I can't say that there for sure is one, but it would appear to be you need some sort of blend of probably at least two future NBA players, regardless of how long they're on your roster. One and done, there's guys that like a Josh Hart that grows into a four-year NBA prospect or something like that. You need two of those to win a title, and you need immediate, undeniable, I think, freshman talent in, in many cases, not always. But then if you're going to have that, you need to certainly counter that with players that have started for multiple years and are actual contributors, not just, you know, a six and four guy, but a guy who can average close to 10, maybe grab six rebounds, or if he's not a big boards guy, give you a four or five assists. You need some sort of blend there. And if you can have probably six of those kind of guys, because I think once you get to the tournament, depth doesn't mean as much. I think coaches care more about depth than what actually matters. I think depth matters over the course of a season. But once you get to March, you basically need six guys that can do damage, and you have a perfect blend there that gets you the best chance of winning a title. It's just interesting. Um, like It would be very difficult to do to say – this five-star, one-and-done prospect who Draft Express says is going to be the 14th pick in next year's draft wants to come with us, but we've already got two guys like him. We're not taking another one. Like, I mean, how could you possibly turn that talent down? But I think, and again, nobody's doing this intentionally, but I think what North Carolina has shown us is that you, you, if the goal is to get really good and be really good and stay really good and compete for national championships – it is easier to do that with j- sophomores and juniors and seniors who are former top 50 players as opposed to a bunch of freshmen who are former top 15 na- national recruits. It's like that's, okay. that's what the evidence actually shows. And it's just I, – I think if I were a coach, I would start trying to think along those lines. Let's go out and get two one-and-done guys. Like, And by the way, this only applies to like Duke, Kentucky, maybe Arizona, maybe UCLA. UCLA. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then, geez, you, it might be those four. I really, I yeah. Like, let's just focus on John Cavalier and Mike Krzyzewski. If I were one of them, I might really say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna modify what we're doing just a bit. We are no longer going out and trying to get all five star prospects. We're going to go out and get two guys who we think are one and done. And but once we get those, the the rest of our recruiting class is going to be." Also, super talented guys. Like, don't go out and sign bombs, but go out and sign guys somewhere between twenty-five and seventy, because we Michigan State next year, GP. That's exactly. It's exactly right. Michigan State is the perfect example. Without a doubt. Okay, so can we uh, let's now let's look at Missouri, which is in a different spot, but it's loading up on all these freshmen. It's got a lot of interesting talent. Michael Porter Jr. Very solid chance of being the number one pick next year. But what should you know, how should we be discussing Missouri? How should fans be expecting? I had Missouri fans asking me if it was reasonable if Jonte Porter, I'm not kidding about this, if Jonte Porter opts to reclassify, which might happen, um, if if they should be expecting or hoping to go to a Final Four. It's insane, but you yeah, get, that's the thing insane. is like, when your program's down and then suddenly you have this influx of serious talent and major positive press, um, you can just see the delusion of a fan base. I, you know, I, I feel for the Missouri fans who have just been dying for this forever. Um, but Quanzo Martin obviously is kind of doing what he has to do here. You get the job. You win on the recruiting trail. 
specifically in that first year, right, GP? You have to get as many big wins as possible. You're not thinking in terms of a Final Four yet. You're just thinking in terms of how am I going to run my program, how am I going to turn this roster over, and I'm going to start by getting the best possible players in here as soon as possible, and because that should translate to as many you know, wins as as you know, theoretically possible, specifically in that first year. So Missouri is a different case from what we're talking of about. Course. But I figured it, it made for a good transition. Yeah, no, um, at, at Missouri, this doesn't even apply. At Missouri, just go get the best players you can get, period, end of story. You're not involved with five one-and-done players, prospects, the way Duke is, Kentucky is. Um, I love what's happening at Missouri right now uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, I would say, if you're a Missouri fan and you're talking about the Final Four, calm down. Uh, what have we learned in recent years? doesn't matter how great Michael Porter is. No one player can transform a basketball program basically by himself. Ben Simmons couldn't do it. Markel Fultz couldn't do it. Uh, Michael Porter is not going to do it either. I'm not saying you're going to have a losing season. I'm just saying um, I'd be shocked if Missouri's a top 30 team in college basketball next year. Um, uh, keep in mind, uh, even though this recruiting class is uh, terrific and uh the staff deserves all the credit in the world for getting this thing assembled, right? Really, in a matter of two months, and North Carolina State had a top five recruiting class last year. Didn't go to uh, the NCAA tournament. Uh, Texas had a top five recruiting class last year. Didn't go to the uh, NCAA tournament. Michigan State, uh, while hit with injuries, I know, did, had a really highly rated recruiting class last year and struggled all year long. And and you got into the tournament, but like was never a serious threat to do anything. Uh, I don't think. And so. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Michigan State because they actually are a perfect example of what I'm talking about uh, uh, when we were talking about this Texas class. Michigan State got all these great players, but really only one one-and-done guy. The rest of them were just, like, they're really good, talented guys, but they're the types that help you win when they're sophomores and juniors, not when they're freshmen. That's why Michigan State struggled much of last year and that they're all back. And their one-and-done guy actually came back too, Miles Bridges. Yeah. Um, now they've got a chance to go to a Final Four, win a national championship. What I love most about the Missouri um, – class is that uh, you know people who listen to this know I live in Memphis and uh, we have been talking Memphis basketball recruiting um, extensively on my radio show because the Memphis basketball program right now is a complete mess they lost six of their top eight players to transfers and they've in you know replaced them with sub 100 you know prospects out of high school and mediocre mediocre junior college players and this was amazing I looked this up the other day I don't think I've told you this. Um, for, in the 16 years before Tubby Smith was hired at Memphis, they enrolled a total of 37 four-star or five-star prospects and at least one every single year without exception. The way it breaks down is nine of those years were under John Calipari. He had 19. In nine years, John Calipari enrolled nine, 19 either four-star or five-star recruits at the University of Memphis. In seven years... Josh Pastner enrolled 18, either four or five-star players. So people do not realize this, but on average per year, Josh Pastner recruited better at the University of Memphis than John Calipari recruited at the University of Memphis. Now, some of that's because of the brand uh, that John built. Like, give him credit for that. But either way, 30, a total of 37 four-star or five-star prospects in a 16-year period and at least one every single year without exception. And since Tubby Smith took over, Memphis has not enrolled a four-star or a five-star. Not one. They, he took over a program that had four former top 100 recruits in it. It was the Lawson brothers, Markel Crawford, and Nick Marshall. Now they have zero top 100 players in their program. So we've been talking a lot about recruiting. And Tubby was asked to 
uh, to talk about this with the beat writer, Mark Giannato, at the, at the Commercial Appeal. And he had all of these, I don't want to call them excuses, but just sort of explanations for why things are going the way they're going. And one of them was, listen, like, you know, when you're operating outside of the Power Five, it's just a, it's, it's a different deal. Like, it's just, you know, recruiting to Memphis today isn't like recruiting to Memphis 10 years ago. And another one was, well, you know, when you take over a new program, it takes you a little time to establish you establish yourself there and it takes you a little time to build your brand in terms of recruiting and you know it takes time it takes time it takes time and another one was and this was more from the memphis fan base the ones who aren't freaking out like the very small minority who aren't freaking out about the current state of things uh they would say well like you got to look at what josh pastner left in like a program that had missed the NCAA tournament two straight years like how do you recruit to a program that's that hasn't been operating at a high level and so I look at Missouri and I look at other programs in the top 15 of the recruiting ranking class of 2017, and it just blows away every one of those excuses. Like Missouri went eight and, what was it, 36 or 46? Let me look at the, the number. In eight and 46 in SEC games the last three years. All right? So that's crazy. Eight and 46. And they have, just like that, Signed a top 10 recruiting class. So don't tell me you can't recruit to a program that's been on downtimes because Conzo Martin just did it. And by the way, and, and you can argue that Memphis has better. Now, Missouri is a proud program. You can easily argue that Memphis historically edges out Missouri in terms if you even want to look at like by every Missouri. by every way you measure such things. Memphis is a historically better basketball program than Missouri. If you look at it on the court success, if you look at recruiting rankings historically, Memphis trumps Missouri in every way. All of that. Yeah. Okay. So don't tell me you can't recruit to a program that's been struggling because Conzo Martin's doing it. Oh, and by the way, Avery Johnson at Alabama. Alabama had been in the NCAA tournament since 2012, but they got a top five recruiting class getting set to enroll. So that excuse is just blown right out of the water. And then like, well, you know, it, it takes time. It takes time. Really? Because Jared Haas was hired at Stanford, same time Tubby Smith was hired at Memphis. He's got a top 15 recruiting class. Marvin Menzies hired at UNLV, same time Tubby Smith was hired at Memphis. He's got a top 15 recruiting class. Um, uh, Rick Stansberry hired at Western Kentucky, same time that Tubby Smith was hired at Memphis. He's got a top 15 uh, recruiting class. And now, Conzo Martin, dude was hired two months ago. Two months ago, got a top 10 recruiting class. So that one's blown completely out of the water. And then, well, you know, it's hard to recruit outside of the Power Five. Really? UNLV's doing it. Western Kentucky's doing it. Travis Ford's got a top 10 recruiting class for 2018, committed right now. You know, got commitments from two top 50 players within six months of getting the job. That's outside of the Power Five structure. So, like, what I love about the Missouri story, combined with the other stories that you can draw out of the class of 2017 team rankings, and this is what I wrote the column about, and I deliberately didn't mention Memphis because I didn't want it to be a Memphis column. But it just sort of what it shows you is there are really no excuses out there. You can't be Kentucky or Duke, but but you can be right behind Kentucky or Duke. And if you're at the mid-major or above level and you have resources that your administration provides you, there is no excuse for you not recruiting at a high level. Or at the very least, the only thing preventing you from doing it is you. It's not that you just got a job and you're trying to get your feet underneath you. Conzo Martin was living in Berkeley two and a half months ago. He's now got a top 10 recruiting class in Columbia, uh, Columbia, Missouri. It's not because your program has been losing lately and kids don't want to go there. Really? Markel Fultz went to Washington. Uh, Alabama's got a five-star point guard in Colin Sexton. Last time time Alabama was in the NCAA tournament, Colin Sexton was like 12 years old. 
It doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. The only thing keeping any coach in America at the mid-major or above level from recruiting at a high level, if his administration gives him resources, is him and his staff. And I, I, I think the Missouri story, along with the other stories that I've mentioned, proved that undeniably. It is an interesting year because you've got two, and part of the word, but two narratives that are kind of running side by side with each other. Because Duke and Kentucky are, again, the top two classes in the country, and that's something that we've just come to expect in the past half decade. And you've got this continuation of five-star top ten prospects not necessarily going to the trendy places. You, you know, I wouldn't even include um, Bamba to Texas, but you have Porter to Missouri, and he was going to go to Washington, you know, on the heels of Fultz going to Washington. You've got Sexton to Alabama. You've got uh, Rick Stansbury's got a top 10 guy going to Western Kentucky. Um, it is interesting to see how and, – and by the way, I think this is good for college basketball. I like the variety. Give me the variety every year. Um, I want to see twenty the top 20 players. I'd love to see those you know, at 15 different kind of programs because I think variety and spice is a lot of really good things for it on a league-by-league league basis giving us more interesting storylines by the time we get to January and February. I mean, just to, I, to, 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 uh, to jump on what, what, you know, UNLV's got a top 15 recruit. Miami's got a top yes. 15 recruit. Um, Oklahoma's got a top 25 recruit. Uh, Mississippi State's got a top 30 recruit. Alabama has two top 30 recruits. Xavier's got a top 30 recruit. Iowa State's got a top 35 recruit. Wake Forest has got a top 35 recruit. Virginia Tech's got a top 35 recruit. Oregon State's got a top 35 recruit. Um, add it all up, 66 different programs, as I wrote in the column, everybody from Butler to Buffalo signed at least one four-star or five-star prospect, 66 different programs. So again, it, 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 and it, it, if you're saying, well, you know, it's just hard to get that type of recruit. Well, really? Because it's not, it doesn't appear to be. Everybody else is doing it. Yeah, no, I get you. You're putting, you're essentially putting the coaches who can't do it on notice. Um, but, and listen, the, the evidence is there. Um, it's it's interesting because I don't I don't feel like if we had had this discussion three years ago, Gary, I'm not sure we would have anticipated it. The sport and recruiting to necessarily turn this way. Now, there's always been some variety. Don't get me wrong, but at the time, it just it seemed like um, Duke and Kentucky, Arizona, I would say even Carolina at that moment before you know the NCAA stuff kind of bubbled up again. It just seemed as though we might be getting a little monotonous. That has not happened. That has not been the case. And so as we wrap up, to give listeners just a full idea, the ones that aren't super, super into recruiting, here's basically the state of it in 2017. Because college players are, are given until 10 days after the combine to decide whether they're going to they're stay or go for good, which means uh, by May 24th, we got to have answers. What you'll have now perpetually going forward is a handful of guys in a recruiting class not deciding until April or May of that year where they're going to go because it's going to affect perhaps their playing time and, and any other factors like, you know, you just wonder. Um, Bruce Bowen right now, I think, is the only five-star left. Is he waiting on Raleigh Alkins and what he's going to do with Arizona, whether he's going to go to Arizona or not? The point I'm making here is it's a more delayed process now. Okay, The recruiting calendar is longer than it's ever been. Coaches are twisting a little bit more. And with this, I think that it's had a minor trickle-down effect as, in terms of other programs that maybe aren't as 
um, tied up with potential guys leaving, uh, they're able to recruit more aggressively to present different kinds of opportunities. And so with that, you know, a four-star that might have tried to just recruit himself up just a little bit and go to a program that might have been just a little bit above, well, now he's going to go play at Butler or Oregon State or whatever. And so I think that maybe has a little bit of an impact going forward. I don't anticipate on this changing in the near future. I think that we're going to get more of this unless, unless Missouri is brutal next year, Alabama is terrible, Western Kentucky is a non-factor. If we get enough of these programs that are getting five-star players and they're still falling on their face, I do very much think that um, the power players behind the scenes will then strongly encourage, hey, just go to a top-ten program. It doesn't matter if you're only going to get, you know, 22 minutes of playing time you don't want to end up like a b c d e f g they didn't even make the tournament yada 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 that's the only way that i think i see this trend turning and i don't think that'll happen well uh, i think there's a difference between some of the examples we're, we're talking about here like it is possible that i don't know um uh mitchell robinson might spend his one year of college you know playing off of national television and not making the ncaa tournament um, he's going to Western Kentucky for he, people that don't know that. You're right. He's going to Western Kentucky. It is, um, it's possible Brandon McCoy, who's going to UNLV, might might be the same thing. Um, as we've seen with Ben Simmons and, and with Markel Falls, it doesn't matter how great you are. You can't do it by yourself. And so to me, that is an important lesson. If I were a one-and-done player and in my one year of college, it mattered to me to be on a team that was ranked and relevant and headed to the NCAA tournament, I would make sure I understood and never forgot, I can't go somewhere where I'm not surrounded by good pieces. It doesn't matter how great I am. I'm not going to be able to do it myself. If Ben Simmons couldn't, Markel couldn't, I can't either. And I do think, like, if I were advising some one-and-done player and he was saying, um, so, uh, Mr. Parrish, I'm, I'm looking at these schools, these schools, these schools. Um, which ones, and, and there was one on there that, like, had no good pieces there and had no recent success and had no reasonable chance of going to the NCAA tournament, I'd say, don't go there because you're wasting, you're just, you're going to hate it. It's going to be your one year of college. You're not going to win, but I'm really, really good. So was Ben Simmons. So was Markel Fultz. So was Henry Ellens. And you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. I do think that's a lesson for one and done guys. Guys like Colin Sexton though, I think what he's doing is enrolling at a place that's already got some good pieces. And so you go to Alabama now, you can't make a bad roster relevant by yourself, but you can be the difference between good, between average and good, or good and great. And so if you're Colin Sexton, I think you can reasonably go to Alabama and say, okay, there's some other pieces here that, you know, we got a chance to, to compete at the top of the SEC. And we certainly, given the talent on the roster, should be able to to go to an NCAA tournament. I mean, we are a top five recruiting class joining um, some interesting pieces that didn't win a whole lot of games last year, but are, are talented enough to do it with another year of experience. So um, some of these guys are going to places where they're just setting themselves up to lose. Uh, I, I think that's what Markel Fultz did and probably what Ben Simmons did, although people thought that LSU team was going to be pretty good. But, on, you know, if you're a five-star, I don't think you've got to go to Kentucky or Duke or Kansas or wherever, but... You've got to go somewhere where there's going to be comparable pieces to you uh, or else you're just going to get in a situation where you're losing more than you win. Agreed. Um, 
Okay, let's do a quick thing here for fun. Okay. Right? Yeah, no idea this was coming. I like doing All things right. for fun, so this is exciting. Yeah, this is. Yeah. I mean, this. I don't know. This is how this is going to stack up to the rest of your weekend. But uh, regardless, I figured I'd toss this on you. So we've got basically five more days until uh, the deadline comes. These players that haven't decided yet, uh, they need to decide if they're going to stay in the draft or if they're going to return to college basketball. So I wanted to get our predictions on the table here and see, you know, who we think is is gone for good and and who might who might return. So I'm going to toss them at you and then just give me your your kind of gut reaction on on what you think they're going to do. Gotcha. Okay? Gotcha. Okay. Caleb Swanigan. He will remain in the NBA draft. I agree with that. Maryland's Justin Jackson. He will return to Maryland. I agree. Michigan's DJ Wilson. Will return to Michigan. I agree with that, but something's telling me I'm going to be wrong. Um, North Carolina's Tony Bradley. That one's up in like I I I don't think there's any. I don't think I could I could see him going, but, uh, but you know, yes or no, I think you know one or the other. I, I'll say back at North Carolina. I also say back at North Carolina, I think he actually has a tremendous amount to gain by returning. Um, that's got to really, be the that's got to be the selling point for all of these coaches right now. Is uh, it's not just about coming back and getting better. Uh, you're gonna get better. You should get better. But like, it's coming back and getting in an easy a weaker draft next year, a significantly weaker draft next year. Like, um, you could be eight spots better next year, just even if you're not better, just because like. Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball and De'Aaron Fox aren't in that draft. Right. Yeah, this this first round stands to set a record for the most freshmen taken, and it. it's going to be a much weaker draft next That's year. That's what I would be telling Tony Bradley and uh, Justin Jackson and all of those guys. Like, listen, um, you can you can go get picked in the second round right now if you want to, but uh, you, you will be – everybody will pro- – nobody's projecting you to be in the first round right now. Everybody will project you to be in the second round next year just because the draft is weaker. Like why why rush it? That's that, and that would be my advice. Uh, it, right. Like I always say, if those kids just want to get on with it, I got no problem with them. It's their lives. Um, I I will never um, roll my eyes at an amateur who decides he wants to get paid for what he wants to do. I'm just saying there is a very easy argument to be made in favor of those guys returning to school right now. All right, a few more. Uh, Raleigh Alkins, Arizona. I think returns to Arizona, but yeah, I think I think returns to Arizona. Hamadou Tiallo, Kentucky. I think we touched on this last podcast. I think, I think he's gone. I, I think he's staying in the draft. Like why? Like, think, yeah. Like so, he's he has acknowledged publicly his dream is to play in the NBA. He probably just wants a first round guarantee, and somebody's going to give that to him. I mean, I would if I were picking twenty seventh right now. I'd say yeah. If you're on the board, we will take you. And once once he uh, is is in a place where he understands. The absolute worst case scenario has him uh, as a multimillionaire and on an NBA roster next year. Uh, what's why are you going? Why are you going back to Kentucky? Like just go, just get on with it. I mean, he's he tested so well that somebody's going to take him. I mean, he's 18 years old and a freak athlete. That's two great places to start. Yep, uh, Louisville's Dang Adele. Ugh, I think I have no, I have no feel on this one. Yeah, whatsoever. I think returns to school, but like I could see him staying. Yeah. I, I would pick, if you make me pick one or the other, I would pick return to school. I have zero uh, idea. Um, all right. Uh, Svi Mikhailik, Kansas. I think comes back to Kansas. <sighs> I think so, too. This kid has been an NBA prospect. It feels, for like, for a, it feels like for a I, decade. 
because he basically enrolled when he was like just barely 17. He had good attributes. He was super young. And now, like, he like he really is a case of like if he really wanted to and could have gone like as early as possible, he should have gone. Um, he could still ultimately end up getting drafted. Like, I could totally see a situation where Sevilla averaged like 15 next year with Kansas. I could see that happening. But um, it's just interesting to me that he has not returned yet. I think he will. And then. We both think Andrew Jones is going to be back at Texas. I think that's – I mean, Vince Edwards, Purdue, he's got to return, I think. Yeah, uh, oh, actually, you know what's an interesting one is Aaron Holiday at UCLA. I think Thomas Welsh definitely comes back. He hasn't technically announced it yet. Aaron Holiday. I mean, I will say – I'll say he returns because, you know, he was a really good team player last year, except it being a six-man and next year, I would think he would return to a starting role and would want to take advantage of, of a week. Yeah, I, I could see him going, and I think if he stayed in the draft, he'd get picked um, somewhere, not in the first round, but I, I think in the second round, he'd probably get picked. Uh, but, yeah, if I were him, I would return to school. I think I would return to school. Um, did, we, uh, did we podcast prior? I think we Frank Jackson committed after our previous podcast yes um, uh, gonna stay in the draft and then of course yeah. uh, Trayvon Duvall then subsequently committed to to Duke right. so they've got now and I, I you know this feels like ancient news now but now Duke finally has a natural and elite point guard that it frankly hasn't had in either the past two years so that's good right. that's good independent of everything else but also great for Grayson Allen Grayson is capable of running your basketball team but that's not what he's best at. It's not where he's most comfortable. So now you've got a, a natural point guard, um, and, and Grayson can get off of the ball and just go do what he does well, which is score. I think, as wild as this is, you know, Grayson went from All American to preseason National Player of the Year to National Punchline to I think he could end up being the National Player of the Year again. <laughs> is that crazy? It's not crazy. Uh, that would be super interesting if it happened. And it's certainly possible. I love Duval's game. I, I cannot speak highly enough of it. I think he is going to be a fantastic player. Um, but with Duke's roster set up, I, Grayson being their best player next year, with Duval having the, the, the offense you know, under his control, I could definitely see that happening. It'll, it'll be way interesting if it if it happens like that i do expect grayson kind of regardless to be a top 20 player in college basketball which sounds like obvious but at the same time like we remember what he did and did not do last year they just took a massive drop and it's just a matter of uh if you can enter next year fresh but dude we do not need to talk about grayson allen in may we have so many more months and like at this point we're just sort of uh, all over the place but let me ask you this okay caleb swanigan stays in the draft Yep. Who, who's the preseason national player of the year? Oh man! Um, oh, with Miles Bridges. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, oh, okay, hold on. So you got Bridges. Could be Joe Barry. Uh, Barry, a dark horse. He won't get the pick, but I'm just telling you, um, a, a really solid first team preseason consideration would be Jalen Brunson. Um, who else out there? Boo, boo, boo. Um, bon Bonzi Colson? Bonzi's a good pick. He's not going to be National Player of the Year, but he'll be on the All-American no, list. No, I think uh, I think the pick is probably – here's where I would stand on it. 
if Caleb comes back, obviously I mean, it's yeah. him. If not, Devontae Graham will get consideration just because he'll be good, and Kansas will be really good. So by default, Devontae Graham. But yeah, keep going. I think it's um, I think it's, I think it's Caleb Swanigan. Obviously, if he's back in school. If not, I'd probably put my vote down for Miles Bridges. Oh, man, I got to think about that. Yes, probably. I, I'm probably with you on that. Because we're talking about a uh, great player on a great team, and he's a great player on what should be a great team. That's what we're talking who about. Who else am I missing? Who else am I missing in, like, the top? Oh, well, I mean, I mean, you could start talking about DeAndre Ayton, you know. No, yeah, I know. Uh, but no, because Alonzo Trier. Oh, Alonzo, yeah, Alonzo Trier. Trier will probably, like, Ayton's going to be, I think Ayton will be really good. Um, but Trier will probably lead the team in scoring. Um Anyone else in the top ten to twelve that we should consider? Oh, I think okay. I, I'm like I think at the top of the list you're going Miles Bridges, Alonzo Trier, Joel Berry, Devontae Graham, uh, Grayson Allen. Grayson, yeah. Uh, man, I feel like there's one that I'm missing. I mean, I would I would still Brunson is just Jalen Brunson. Uh, I mean, there's Landon. Oh, you know, you know what? Actually, you know who we didn't. You know who I did not mention, hmm. but he's got to come back. He hasn't said it. Trayvon Blewett. Correct. Right. Yes. Blewett is uh, has the potential to just be a numbers monster. Now it would require Xavier to basically be, you know, a four seater better. Not convinced that'll happen, but Blewett is absolutely uh, stands to be a second team. I think at worst All American next year. He has not announced he's coming back. I think he's got it. I don't think he's going to get drafted, so he should return. The homie Jock Landale. Really good, but um, St. Mary's probably won't get, like... They're going to be top 25. They should be. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't see it. Yeah, he's he should be under the under consideration list. Yeah, I, yeah. So it'll be, yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting. We'll have that conversation another day. Hey, the draft lottery was earlier this week. Celtics picking one. Lakers picking two. Is it clear to you it goes Fultz and uh, Lonzo? think so i'd love some drama gp i'd love if uh danny ainge kind of held that pick hostage and forced the lakers to do some chicago bears bs um cause just because i think that would be really terrific uh i yeah i ultimately think it goes Fultz and then lonzo um the guys that are like super into the nba uh like our terrific colleague matt moore you know some people just believe that if you're watching what boston isn't doing against cleveland right now in the finals and you say okay you take this team right now and you add Markel Fultz, you're still not beating Cleveland. So why don't you just trade the pick and get someone of serious value? If by any means you can get Paul George or Jimmy Butler, someone that's in their prime and is a proven top 20 player in the league, you absolutely should take that kind of player over Markel Fultz, who beat like two teams from a major conference last year. His Washington team won like nine games and he faced injuries at the end of last season. I get that argument. Um, but I ultimately think that they're going to go Fultz one, Lonzo two, and then the Sixers have the third pick. If I'm Philadelphia, and we'll still talk about plenty of the draft stuff leading up to it, uh, given who else they have on the roster, it would be hard for me to pass on Tatum, but I actually think I'd go Josh Jackson third um, just because of what he does defensively. I would, I would, Personally, I would probably take Jackson third, and that's fine. Yeah, that's the way I've got it. I've got it Marco Fultz one, uh, Lonzo Ball two, Josh Jackson three, Jason Tatum four, and then De'Aaron Fox five to the Sacramento Kings. Um, to your point about Boston trading, here's the thing, and, and perhaps I'm wrong about this. I think reasonable people could disagree. But I don't think the difference between winning the East is Paul George or Jimmy Butler. You know what it is? It's LeBron James. 
the retiring. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a you've got a LeBron James problem that can't be solved by anybody ex- except for LeBron James getting thirty five years old or thirty six years old. So my approach would actually be the, the the opposite of what you suggested or what you said Matt suggested. My approach would be let's take the nineteen year old who will be twenty when LeBron's thirty three. 21 when LeBron's 34, 22 when LeBron's 35, 23 when LeBron's 36, and you try to get immensely talented young guys. You got um, Jalen Brown already. You've got, uh, you can get Markel Fultz. You still got Isaiah Thomas in his prime. Um, I mean, they might add, they might have the number one pick in the draft again next year. Right. You know? I know. Just get, get load up and you wait the LeBron James thing out. I don't think. As, as wild as it sounds, I don't think you can add a piece that makes you better than LeBron James in his prime with these guys around him. It's just like, it's just, you, so I, I wouldn't, I if I'm running the Celtics, like, I love this. Be the number one seed, get into the Eastern Conference Finals, take your best shot. You know, who knows? Maybe LeBron pulls a hamstring. But I, I would be saying we, our goal is to win, not the 2017 World Championship. We try to win the 2020. 2021, 2022. We got to get LeBron out of our way. There's nothing we can do to make that happen. The only thing that can make that happen is the calendar. Does that make any sense? It it does. You just uh, fans don't want to hear that publicly, but that's probably, <laughs> I mean, that's, probably the, that's probably that's probably the truth. I mean, the, the, this LeBron James thing is is incredible, and and not to mention the second best player in the history of the league. It's I mean, at this point, honestly, like I'll listen to other like Magic was awesome, Larry was awesome, but like. It's insane. He's going to go to the finals for like the freaking seventh, eighth straight year. There's good, there are people who will never accept it, and I'm not even sure where I'm at on it. I'm just saying it's a way more reasonable conversation than than some of the uh, Jordan fanboys suggest. But he's in. And, and by the way, I grew up a Jordan fan, and I and I entertain it. So. He, he's in that conversation now. I mean, you can you can be, like, is there a team in the East that you couldn't put LeBron on and he wouldn't win the East? I know, isn't that stupid? And it's probably it's got to it's got to be pretty close to true. I mean, I don't know if he's if he's on Brooklyn right now. Yeah, I mean, okay, like it's it's probably not anybody, but it's damn near anybody. I mean, you could al- you could almost put him anywhere and he'd win the East. And what's wild about that is that, I mean, he was in Cleveland the first time. They were you know going to the NBA Finals every time. Then he or you know like they were they were awesome, and then he left and they stunk. And the Heat were awesome. And then he left Miami, and immediately Cleveland becomes awesome again. And Miami becomes mediocre. Like, you you know, listen, Jordan, I, I'm not here to knock that guy. But, like, the truth is they took him out the Bulls, and the Bulls were still good. You take LeBron, yes. off, you take LeBron off a team, and that team isn't any good anymore. Back to the draft, though. We don't need to have a LeBron-Michael Jordan <laughs> conversation here. Um, but uh, I actually thought in the draft lottery, like, the Lakers not winning it, but getting second was probably the best case scenario for the Lakers. And here's why. If you're picking first and you're L.A., you got a real issue on your hands. Because most people think that Markel Fultz is the superior prospect. But, you know, in L.A., there's a lot of pressure on them to, to take Lonzo Ball. I mean, he's a kid from California, from Southern California. You know, him playing for the Lakers, you know, a California kid playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, it's not unlike... You know, a South Carolina kid playing for South Carolina, like Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Oh. Shouts to Devin Downey. 
You might remember January 26, 2010, 30 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, 68-62 victory over John Calipari's Kentucky Wildcats. It was Coach Cal's first loss ever as UK's coach. So, I mean, you remember. You're old enough to remember what it meant for South Carolina to have a kid from South Carolina running that South Carolina program. And that's what is uh, on the table uh, for the Lakers with Lonzo Ball. If you're picking first, you've got to really struggle with that. Now there really is no struggle. You just like let the Boston take Markel, and then you can reasonably take Lonzo Ball. You're not picking Lonzo, Lonzo Ball over Markel Fultz. You're just taking Lonzo Ball uh, because you're picking second instead of first. I actually think it, it makes Magic's job way easier picking second than it does picking first. I agree. And we'll have God knows how many freaking headlines and stories between now and the draft regarding Lonzo, his father, and the Lakers. It's uh, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Um because LeVar can get so tiresome, and the reality is this guy's going to be a part of our media existence for the next decade because, oh. like, he's not, he's, not, he's not going away. Yeah, well, people used to say, like, Lonzo's the great one, and I don't know if the other two are any good, and people still do say that about LiAngelo, but, like, you look up now, LaMelo's a top 15 player in the country. Like, he's a five-star recruit now. You know, he's shot up to, like, six foot five. So, like, LaMelo's going to be – and. God, I mean, can you, like, the way LaMelo plays, like, he's going to be launching, like, it's going to be, it's going to be like, uh, who, it's going to be like, um, like, Jimmer-ish? Like, yeah, I could see it. Yeah, yeah like, LaMelo Ball could end up being like a Jimmer Fredette at the college level, just launching from all over the court, and then LaVar will be right there, and I struggle with this LaVar Ball thing. I don't know if we've talked, I know we've talked about LaVar, but I don't know if I've made the point um, that I've made on radio before other podcasts before like on one hand lavar's turned into a cartoon character right um he's creating national headlines every day and he's uh you know arguing with Kristen Leahy on national television and um it's just like he's turned into a bit of a car- the big baller brand 495 dollars shoes like i don't sign off on everything he's done and i think he completely blew it with the shoe making it that price because it turned it into a joke and the only reason kids buy shoes is if they think they're cool the reason people pay hundreds and thousands of dollars for yeezys is because somebody uh you know just culture in general decided yeezys are cool um these things are not cool because they got mocked on social media so for the same reasons that the steph curry shoes can't sell because people decided they're not cool uh, the big baller brand shoes aren't going to be able to sell because people have decided they're not cool. So I think he messed that up big time. And I think he's messed up several things. Uh, I, again, uh, I don't agree with everything he's said or done. On the other hand, and I think this is the hand that people don't talk about at all. You know, we cover a sport where so often we have stories about kids who grew up without fathers in their lives or positive male role models in their lives. And here we have a man who... Um, on a very basic level, this is his story. Married his college sweetheart, had three children, um, was a presence in their life every single day. You've never heard anything bad about Lonzo or Leangelo or Lamelo. You never heard about him fighting with teammates. You never heard about him, um, you know, uh, getting in trouble at school. You never heard drug stuff. You know, I'm not saying they're perfect. I don't know him like that, but I'm just saying there's never been any sort of issue with them that's, you know, become publicly known. Um, they're all going to go to college for free, you know, on athletic scholarships. One of them is about to be a multimillionaire. Um, he's still with the woman he married. 
like I, again, all the loudmouth stuff. I get it if that turns you off, but uh, strictly from a Parrington pers- Parrington perspective, like the guy's done a pretty impressive job, and I don't know how that guy I just described in the world that I previously described got turned into the devil. The idea that Lavar Ball is the devil seems wild to me because um, he has seemingly dedicated his adult life to being a strong presence in his children's lives. And he has raised them to be, by all accounts, intelligent, respectful young men who are also awesome at what they do. What's so bad about that? What's bad about it is... I, I have three sons, and my three sons probably aren't going to be um, LeVar Ball's three sons. I'm not sitting here saying LeVar Ball's a better father than me, but like, I, I would love for my kids to turn into LeVar Ball's kids. That's my point. I know you would. Um, and I could see you taking a similar path to LeVar. <laughs> I could totally see Gary Ball or LeVar Parrish. Um, I think the biggest reason why people are so averse is that LeVar just seems so hell-bent on becoming the star of this family. And while his sons kind of are the ones that have to back it up through performance, um, he can be outlandish, crass, just wants to take kind of any interview now to be on any network to get whatever quote he can because he sees inherent value in keeping his name in the headlines to expanding the reach of his family and his son. Obviously, that has worked to a certain degree. It will also backfire to a certain degree. And by pure nature, I mean, the Los Angeles Times has, has tracked the... Um, the shoe right and i don't even i don't even know i don't think it's sold more than 600 pairs at this point right so and that that's like a joke like it's you put out a shoe like to move 600 like what like you know if you think it's even remotely successful you should be selling well this is where they this is where they messed up it became a joke on social media and the again why do people buy um louis vuitton bags why do people drive a, a mercedes you know why do folks buy yeezys some of it is just because Hey, like the Yeezys are really comfortable or man, I like the way the Mercedes drives or I just, I just yeah, love the it's, look. It's half like the, the price you better, it better legitimately no, here, be worth the cost. Like you're no, getting a superior product, but there's also, no, no, that, that's not, that's not my point. My point is this. I know, I know, I know. But then there's the vanity aspect and, and, and all the other things that come with the, the reason people buy overpriced or very expensive things is sometimes rooted in just like, Hey, that's what I like. Often it is a status symbol. It's it's yeah. it's so when people see you with that Mercedes logo or that Louis Vuitton bag or those Yeezys on your feet, they go, "Oh wow, that person's got style, or that person's got money, or that person's cool, or whatever." Um, I, like I'm I'm a forty year old who like is still so shallow that I subscribe to some of this stuff. Um, yes, you wear Yeezys. Now I don't. <laughs> right, right, okay. So like, I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm just By saying. By the way, I don't get the Yeezys at all. I don't even think they're an attractive shoe. But go on. I will say, like, in all sincerity, they are the most comfortable pair of shoes I've ever owned. They're super comfortable, and there is never a time. This is remarkable because again, I'm 40 years old. It's not like I'm a 23 year old in the club. I'm, I don't go to those types of places anymore. I'm just like in random places. Anytime I have them on, somebody mentions them without except. I don't know what that means. Uh, like I, other than like they are noticeable and people like compliment you on them every time you go somewhere. That's been my experience at least. But my point being this, 
if you're going to charge $495 for a pair of shoes, they have to be, people have to say those are cool. When, when you're wearing them, people have to say, ooh, you got those on. Oh, wow. And when they priced them at that, it got mocked on social media. And once it got mocked on social media, it became uncool to have them. And if it's, why would anybody pay $495 for something that's not considered cool? So he was like, he messed up from the start. Whereas if you would have priced them reasonably and and had a marketing campaign that was basically, this is our way to stick it to the big time companies. They all think we need them. No, we don't. Here's my $125 big baller brand shoe. We're gonna we're we're blazing a new trail. You could have at least had people who latched onto it from the hey, let's let's this here's this black family sticking it to white America trying to you know be entrepreneurs. Like you'd at least had somebody rooting for you as as an underdog from an underdog perspective. Now you just got people laughing at you and rooting against you. And that it's all rooted in the way it was launched in that price tag they put on it. That that I mean it does. It, yeah. Listen, LeVar, it is continually fascinating. I do find him exhausting. And I do believe that like a lot of the people listening to this podcast that kind of just that either, you know, I know a lot of people don't have Twitter accounts, but if they see it on SportsCenter or they see it on their Twitter accounts or they see just these, you know, Facebook videos pop up, it just gets so exhausting to see this guy all over there. You know, if they just want to follow sports, he's everywhere at this point. And there can be, you know, something with some diminishing returns there. I'll be, I'll, I will truly be interested to see how Lavar Ball handles himself in regard to Leangelo in the coming year. And this will undoubtedly be something that we talk about more as we get into the fall and the early part of the season. Because the fact of the matter is, you can't find anyone that doesn't believe that Leangelo is a no doubt about it four-year player, and in fact, probably should not even be at UCLA. So I will be interested to see. If there's some perspective and humility with Lavar in that regard, or if it's going to be more of the same, whereas like Lavar essentially got the high school coach for Lamelo fired, so I, I don't know. I, we'll see. Um, what the big the big question is is what he has done, yes or no? Has it worked? The answer is yes, but I do think there are significant drawbacks, and I'm not, not convinced that we haven't still seen more of the worst of LeVar Ball. I don't believe that, you know, he's going to suddenly retreat from the spotlight because he had an extremely uh, just arrogant, inappropriate incident uh, on the radio and on simulcast on television earlier this week. Um, the the next LeVar Ball story, well, like the next LeVar Ball story, I guess, will be whatever LeVar Ball wants it to be. But it'll, it'll, it'll be... You know, how Lonzo, first off, where he gets picked and how he does, like actually as a rookie. And meantime, and this is, I can already see it coming and it's going to be unfortunate. Leangelo is going to go to UCLA and just be a bit player. And his father has already called him a one and done player. And those words are going to come because people are going to want to shove everything they can back at LeVar. Like everything that he's ever said that doesn't come true, people are going to be anxious to shove it back in his face. And the collateral damage in that is going to be Leangelo, who you've probably never even heard speak. Uh, but his father has – his father was right when he talked about Lonzo. Might be right when he talks about LaMelo. But he's not right when he talks about Leangelo. And the guy who's going to have to pay for that is Leangelo because he's just going to be there being what he is. And all around the country, folks are going to be saying, so this is the next ball brother that was supposed to be great? Then why is he playing six minutes a game for UCLA? And that's just – 
that's that is one of the places where I think Lavar uh, has probably gone a little too far. Is that he has put um, incredibly unrealistic expectations on his middle child, who just isn't equipped to to live up to them. Lonzo clearly was. I think Leangelo might be. I mean, uh, Lamelo might be, but Leangelo he's just not equipped to be what Lavar has has claimed he's going to be. And 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 the folks who are anti-Lavar Ball are going to. Uh, uh, be very anxious to throw that back at the family and it's going to be tough for that kid to take that's that's unfortunate but it is going to happen hey this was a fun podcast i like sometimes when like we knew like a couple of things we we're going to talk about but and it's the off season so i know that uh the listeners are the diehard listeners but i do sometimes like when we can just kind of vamp go off on tangents hit on these random things so uh so yeah so i'm glad we did this one today and hey. we're able to and some different stuff, and we crossed the one hour mark on a. I know, college, isn't it crazy? On a college, I, I hope on a college basketball podcast in uh, middle of May, we crossed the one hour mark. I know. I feel like our listeners do appreciate it, though. Um, and it like I can't believe we're at an hour because I just I don't know. It hasn't felt that like that long to me. So hopefully the listeners appreciate it as well. And um, you know, even though it's slower, there's still things to talk about. And you know, on our next one, we'll have clarity on who's coming back and who isn't, and we'll kind of assess from there we'll have a, a near definitive top 25 and one at that point because we'll basically have almost every reasonable addition recruiting and uh, non-recruiting wise so we'll kind of take it from there sounds good remember you can subscribe to the island college basketball podcast on itunes so please go do that and uh, seriously thank you all for listening at all but especially if you made it to this final minute of an hour plus long uh, off-season college basketball podcast we're going to be back next week until uh, then and take care Thank you.